Hi, my name is Preston, and I'm one of the pastors here at St. Peter's Fireside. I'm delighted that you have chosen to take some time to join us today for worship and to hear from God's Word. So will you join me by praying as we begin? Living God, we come to you today and thank you for the gift of your Word. Thank you for the Gospel of Luke. Thank you for Luke and enabling him to write down the story of Jesus for us. We pray today that you will come and speak, Holy Spirit, that you will reveal yourself to us afresh. May we see you in a new light today by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a question today. What if your life was just about one thing? Only one thing. For some of you, that may sound terrifying if you like living on a variety of new experiences. But my guess is that for others of you, for me, it may sound relieving. I'm not saying, of course, in this scenario that you only do one thing for the rest of your life, like only eat mac and cheese forever or only do your house chores every day. That's not what I mean. But instead that your life was about one thing, one goal or one purpose, like a sharp pointed arrow that everything else aligns behind and helps you to clarify every single day and month and year that you have to live. Leadership consultants advise sharpening a mission statement or a core value for companies to help them do this. Take Starbucks, for example. Do you know their mission, their one thing? No, it's not to put every other coffee shop in the world out of business, although you may be tempted to think that. It's this, to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. So the next time you're sipping your gingerbread latte out of a red cup, receive that inspiration to your human spirit. Sports teams also like to find their one, t- their one thing. Think of the Friday Night Lights coach, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Even Bonnie Henry has given us one thing, well, three things actually, to survive the pandemic. Be kind, be calm, be safe. What if you could name the one thing that your life is about? If you could, what would it be? What is it that defines your identity and shapes your purpose in life? Do you know? Today, we read a special story about Jesus. It's special for two reasons. First, it's the only story we have in the Bible between seeing Jesus as a baby and into adulthood. We're used to reading about Jesus' birth, and we're used to reading about him as an adult doing ministry, but we know almost nothing about everything in between. Toddler Jesus, grade school Jesus, teenager Jesus, young adult Jesus. We're in the dark except for this little story. And it can almost feel like a tease, like the trailer to the prequel of your favorite movie, but you never get to watch the movie. It's so brief, it's just a quick glance at Jesus at 12 years old and it begs so many questions. What else was he up to? Who were his friends? What was he like? What games did he play? How did he get along with Joseph in the carpentry shop? The Bible doesn't entertain these questions for us. And yes, it would be fascinating to learn more about Jesus in these times. Here's the thing. 
The four Gospels give us everything that we need to know about Jesus and his life. They give us all we need. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have written down everything that God wanted to share with us about himself in the scriptures. Every detail. So what does God plan to reveal in this story of 12-year-old Jesus? And that's the second reason this story is so special. Because we see in Jesus at the age of 12 articulate his identity and purpose in one concise statement to his mother. They're actually the first words that Jesus speaks in Luke's gospel. And this is impressive. Think about your life at the age of 12 for a minute. If you are 12 and older, what were you thinking about? What was important to you? What were you spending your time doing? How strong was your sense of identity? For me, it was all about making the soccer team, getting American Eagle and Hollister swag, perfecting my blonde hair into the perfect swoop. Whatever it took to get noticed, to be liked, and to fit in and to find my place. Now, of course, Luke has made it abundantly clear in chapters 1 and 2 that Jesus is no ordinary child, so it's not completely fair to compare our 12-year-old our selves to Jesus. But holding all of the expectation that Luke has built about Jesus on one hand, him being a long-awaited Messiah and a coming king and born of a virgin, and on the other, we still have to acknowledge that Jesus grew up fully human, a young boy. And this boy was on a different path of finding himself than the average 12-year-old boy I've certainly known. This story tells, us, tells it all for us. It tells us Jesus' one thing. But what is it? What is it that guides and shapes Jesus' life? Let's look at the scripture again together. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went on a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Well, Luke brings us back to the temple. Jesus is now a boy, as we've said, going to the Passover feast with his parents and, and his wider Nazareth community. And Jesus does something that surprises us here. The feast ends. Mary and Joseph head home with their company of relatives and friends. 
And at some point, maybe as they're heading through Jerusalem, headed north towards the dirt road that will take them back up towards the Sea of Galilee, Jesus slips out of the caravan. His parents don't realize it for a whole day. And this sounds incredibly irresponsible, and maybe it was. Come on, Mary and Joseph. Where's your son? But they also lived in a very different communal life reality than we do. They trusted that he was with their people. But eventually, to their horror, I'm sure, they realize Jesus just isn't there. So they turn around, head back to Jerusalem, and start looking everywhere for their son. Verse 46 tells us, After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Three days! They looked all over the city for him. Can you imagine what Mary and Joseph were going through, scouring the city for their boy? Those were long days, I'm sure. You can imagine the questions. What has happened to our son? Where is he? What's going on? Did he go somewhere else? Why is he doing this to us? Is he even alive? But at last, they find him. I don't know if they'd already looked in the temple and just missed him somehow, but they finally spot their boy sitting in the temple, sitting with the teachers, asking questions and listening. This was no ordinary 12-year-old boy. And Luke tells us all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So what happens next at this climax? I can, I can picture it almost like that closing scene from Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Do you know the one where Kevin, the little boy, is standing in front of the huge Christmas tree in the plaza in New York City? He's been missing his family and his parents. He's been separated from them. And he's standing there and saying, I wish I could just see my family. His mom spots him from the plaza and yells, Kevin! And starts running over to him and scoops him up and gives him a hug. And he says, I'm sorry, mom. Can't you see Mary and Jesus? Something like this. Mary running over to her boy, wrapping him in a hug, kissing him on the head and saying, Jesus, here you are. We found you. Why have you done this to us, child? Your father and I have been looking everywhere for you. We were scared. We were sick. But Jesus doesn't apologize like Kevin McAllister does. He looks up at his mom with surprise and says something shocking. And his words open a window for us to the one thing that Jesus is about. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Mom, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know? I must be in my father's house. He's not sorry. He doesn't apologize. He's surprised. Why are you looking for me? Which, of course, I would want to, want to respond and say, you are 12 years old and you've been separated from your parents for four days without a word. Why wouldn't we be looking for you? What's wrong with you? But Jesus acts like his mom and dad should have known better. It's almost arrogant. But he's not sassing them. He's sincere. And his sincerity and his words bewilder his parents. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Again, as if they should have known what he'd be up to. 
I wonder if at this moment Mary has Simeon's words ringing in the back of her back of her head. Mary, a sword will pierce your soul also. I'm sure these words from her son felt like a sword piercing her soul. I think they would to any mother. And she could have easily retorted, Son, that's exactly the thing that you are not doing. Your father is Joseph, and he's right here with me. And we were on the way to his house. We were going to your father's house back in Nazareth, and you chose not to come. This is no ordinary boy we're dealing with. So, what do Jesus' words here reveal to us, after all, about him, about his one thing, and about God? Well, let's look closely at verse 49. If you have a Bible with you and you look at verse 49, you may notice that the verse has a footnote at the end of it. And it's because there's another way to translate verse 49. Um, Here's another equally fair translation. Did you not know that I must be about my father's things? So which is it? Does the verse read, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Or about my father's things? Luke's Greek wording isn't clear. It's a little vague and translators struggle. Jesus could be talking about being in the father's house. His one thing being in the presence of God. And this makes sense. Jesus was in the temple when he said those words. But on the other hand, Jesus could be talking about doing his father's things. His one thing is more about doing the thing that God cares about. So which is it? Which one is Jesus saying? You should have known, mom and dad, that I must be with the father or be doing the father's things. Being or doing, which is it? What matters most? We'll look at each briefly. First, being with God. Luke tells us again and again in this gospel that Jesus from this point, all throughout his life, withdrew to be with the Father, to dwell with him in prayer. Eight different times through his ministry, in fact, Luke describes Jesus with the Father in prayer. He's praying at his baptism when he calls his disciples. And when he's healing great crowds, he slips away to pray. He goes off to the mountains to be with his Father. He's praying at the transfiguration. He's praying while he's teaching. He's praying before he gets arrested, and he's praying even on the cross. There's a lot of evidence here that being with the Father is Jesus' main thing. He's withdrawing to pray and dwell with God all the time. And his prayer life results in this deep intimacy with God that no Jew could have imagined at the time. Back to 12-year-old Jesus, look at the intimacy he displays. He comfortably names God as his Father even right to the face of his own earthly father, Joseph. We take it for granted to call God our father, but Jews did not normally think about God as their father at this time, especially in a personal way. The Old Testament does call God father of creation and father of all mankind, and particularly of the Israelite people, yes, but it's always a corporate sense. But Jesus is talking about being in his father's house as if he knows him in a deeply intimate way 
as if he knows the way around the living room in this house and into the kitchen and was free to just wander in and grab some snacks and then curl up beside dad on the couch and read a book. This was new and something that, teacher, that the teachers and Mary and Joseph would have been struck by and scratching their heads over. Why is he talking about God like that? Who is our kid? So was this his one thing? Being with the Father? Well, what about doing? What about doing the Father's things? Could it be the doing instead? Well, Jesus is focused sharply on doing his Father's things too. Jesus tells us what his plans are, what his Father's plans are in Luke chapter 4. He's in the synagogue. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah. And with this reading, Jesus tells us just exactly what the things of God are that he's about to be about. He picks it up and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he sits down and tells everyone, this is being fulfilled today, right now, while you're hearing me. And I'm going to go get to work now. I've got some things to do. And then, you know, what he does is he spends the next several years doing them. Preaching the kingdom, healing the sick, casting out demons, upsetting the religious system in Jerusalem. He even comes back to that same temple overturns the tables and insists that this house must be a house of prayer. Remember, he's very much about prayer. Jesus' ministry ends, of course, in doing the ultimate work of the Father, giving his life away to heal and forgive the sins of the world. So, which is it? What was the boy Jesus trying to tell his parents? What is his one thing? Being with the Father or doing the Father's things? Well, here it is. It's neither. It's not one or the other. It's not just being with the Father. It's not just doing the Father's things. In reality, we can't split the two. I've done this to really show you how silly it is to try. But you've probably heard it before. Something like this. God cares more about you being with him than what you're doing for him. And that's true in a way. Or famously in the book of James, faith without deeds, without doing, is dead. And that's true too. But Jesus' one thing is something else. It is something that he receives freely from the Father. It is something that he gives freely to the Father. It is also something that drives him to be about his Father's things. And it's something that drives more powerfully than money, power, control, lust, guilt, or power. Jesus' identity and his purpose all come down to this one thing. And guess what? He doesn't hide it either. It's not a secret. He's very open about it. When when asked, he tells it plainly. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? He's asked. 
What is the guiding commandment that all the others must fall and step behind? The one thing that interprets the rest of the law. It was a lawyer who asks him, by the way. Jesus looks at him, I think, a little bit like he may have looked at Mary in the temple that day. You should know the answer to this, friend. You should know. Isn't it obvious? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It is loving the Father. That's the thing. Loving and living in the Father's love. Jesus' love for the Father draws him to be with God. Jesus' love for the Father marks his allegiance to God and stirs him up to be about his Father's things. It is love for the Father that keeps the two together. And his love for the Father defines everything about his life. The 12-year-old boy is already clear on this, so much so that he says to his earthly mother and father, My one thing is to love my heavenly father. My allegiance lies with him. I will be about his things. Didn't you know, mom and dad? Now, as we move further into Luke, we'll see Jesus doing all sorts of amazing things his father has planned. And we'll see him continually nurturing his identity as the son because his sonship to God the father, that loving relationship they have, drives everything for him. And for his followers today, for me, for you, if you call yourself one, Jesus has made it simple for us. And if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this will be helpful for you to know the one thing that Christians are meant to be about. Jesus clarified, it's just this one thing for us. And it's the same thing that he was about, loving the Father and living in his love. This is the identity that you've been given. This is the end goal of your life too. This is the one thing of being a Christian. I realize you may have some questions about how to love the Father and live in God's love. I know some of you are probably struggling with this. I know some of you are struggling with this right now. For a variety of reasons, you may have seen the name of Jesus taken in vain and used publicly to promote violence in the news recently. And you're finding it hard to love God. You may be struggling to hold on to hope as the pandemic restrictions keep going and going. It's hard. It's hard for me. Wherever you're coming from today, I want to suggest one place to start. Remember, while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. God gave you himself out of love and gave you a sign, too, to remember that you belong to him. Jesus taught his disciples to baptize with water. He took the simplest, most common thing in our lives, something that everyone's familiar with, water, and said, this will be a sign. You're washed, you're clean, you're baptized, and you have a new place in God's family. 
Jesus helps us grasp what it means to love God and to live in his love with the sign of baptism that he gave. For the rest of your life, if you've been, been baptized, for the rest of your life, this is the sign that defines you and grounds you. For the rest of your life, that's your main thing. You're baptized. That's it. And if you're not baptized today, reach out to us. If you'd like to be baptized, we'd love to talk about it and let you know more about what it means. Even our provincial government is allowing for baptisms during this time, alongside weddings and funerals. Even they know it's important. But for those of you who are already baptized, I'm willing to bet that it's not at the top of your mind every day that you don't think about it all the time. But it is the marker of your new identity in God's family. So just start here. Find a way to remember and celebrate this sacrament where God has expressed his love for you. It's who you are first, and it really matters. You are not first a Canadian or American or a Korean. You're not first black or brown or white or Latino. You're not first a parent or husband, a friend, a teacher or accountant, a student or an artist. You're not first a progressive or a conservative. You're not first an outdoor explorer or a skier or a runner, a coffee connoisseur or a world traveler. You're not first rich or poor or middle class. You're not first powerful or weak. You're not defined by your sexuality or your desires. You are certainly not a sum of your sins and failures, and you're also not a sum of your accomplishments and achievements. The main thing, the one thing, is this. You're baptized. And it means God loves you, and he's made you his own. You're baptized into his name and into his family. Whether dunked or poured or sprinkled, whether you were two months old or 20 years old or 80 years old, if you're baptized, that's your main thing. It's your identity and it's your purpose too. And you can say with 12-year-old Jesus, my one thing is to love my father and to live in his love. My allegiance belongs to him and to no one else. I will be about his things. Start here. Remember this truth. Meditate on it. Jesus used water because we can't escape it. It's everywhere in our lives. So whatever it is, let your morning shower remind you you're baptized, you're his, and nothing can change that. Then go. Then simply go and live a baptized life loving the Father and living in his love.